This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, military aid being sent to Ontario and Nova Scotia. What does that mean? The director of the emergency center in Hamilton saying numbers seem stable, but too early to let the guard down. Diane Francis of the Financial Post says this pandemic failure is the Prime Minister's biggest scandal to date. And why does a 2 by 4 cost so much? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. A lot of people are getting cranky waiting for their vaccine to arrive in Canada. At this rate, I'll be 30 before we have enough to vaccinate those 18. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. All right, from now on, only happy ones. Enough of the cynicism. Uh, it is uh, 1210. It is 900. CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes, uh, as he has done for 58 weeks. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can hit the website and give us a uh, send us an email, Thompson at 900CHML.com. First, we're going to play you this quick report uh, from Tina Trajani and a bit of an update on COVID-19. The Globe and Mail has obtained a letter which was sent to the federal finance minister, and in it, her provincial counterpart indicates the province is willing to pay eligible Ontarians $1,000 a week if Ottawa is the one to administer the program. Peter Bethlen-Falvey says a paid sick leave program is essential to prevent the spread of the virus in workplaces. That would make it easier for essential workers to stay home if they're not feeling well instead of worrying about lost wages. And he says that would be the easiest way to increase use of the federal government's Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit Program, which provides sick leave for up to four weeks, but many have said the amount isn't enough to live on and it takes too long for that $500 payment to reach their accounts. Bethlen Falvey goes on to say that program could be improved if provinces kicked in some cash, which Ontario is prepared to do. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, uh, paid sick leave, uh, four months between doses, uh, fighting over who gets it first, who gets it second, who gets it third, what age group. These are all discussions we have when there is not enough vaccine arriving into Canada. And although we are well aware we don't produce it uh, and we are buying it from other people, uh, I think we were all led to believe that there would be a lot more coming in at a lot more steady pace than uh, what we're seeing. Of course, uh, 1.9 million doses coming in this week. Uh, so that's great news. So hopefully we'll see things start to ramp up. But let's be honest here. We're getting towards the beginning of May and we still have uh, the majority of uh, facilities across uh, the country still only operating at 50 percent uh, of their capacity. All right. Lots of chatter. Let's bring in Donna Skelly, MPP, Flamborough, Glambrook. She is with us now. Donna, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. I love listening to your son when he uh, he starts, opens your show. Yeah, he seems to be getting a little bit more political now, so we're going to have to hamper that back. A little too much editorialization, you know. I think. I don't uh, well, know. We'll leave... I, I like that. I think he should be on my comms team. 
There you go. All right. So uh, <laughs> I'd like to be on your comms team. Uh, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's talk about the premier. Where is he? We haven't seen him in a while. Well, he's at his um, his family home, not his family home. I should say his parents' home, and he is in self isolation because he came into contact, as you know, with uh, a person who was COVID positive, a staff member. But he immediately went, left, and was tested, and it came back negative. So he's safe. He's also had his vaccine, the AstraZeneca. So for another week, he will be uh, staying at his mom's house before. But he's, he's working from home, of course. He, he hasn't taken a day off since, since the outbreak last March. And um, working hard and trying to get more vaccines and, and uh, deliver the vaccines that we have to the hotspots in Ontario and to the people that need it. So how come we haven't seen him in some sort of Zoom call? Because you know what's going to happen. The longer it goes without seeing him, the more uh, we're going to hear chatter. Well, we did see him last week. He did his, um, you know, his Friday. And I think he's still doing his. I, I, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I haven't seen it today uh, or yesterday, I should say. I did not see his news conference, but he had a news conference on Friday. They do have the um, live truck in front of the house. So he is still holding his daily conference. Where are we? Uh, how come we're not seeing that? Friday, you would have seen it. Oh, so, Friday, Thursday, so he's doing Thursday, it once a week? Well, Thursday, he thought. I have not. I Honestly, Scott, I will find out. We're on a, we're on a caucus call at 1230 today. Um, I will ask. How's that? Uh, okay, so what about paid sick days? Uh, sick days? Where are we with that? We're, we're hearing uh, that uh, there's negotiations going on with the federal government. You're trying to get them involved as well. I mean, and I've, I've often thought why we're setting up a whole different system when there's already one in place that doesn't seem to be adequate, so let's make it adequate. Where is that? Do we know? We, the federal, I should say the provincial finance minister, sent a letter, as, as you just reported, to his federal counterpart, Minister Freeland, asking if the federal government would work with the province of Ontario, allowing us, if they're not going to top it up, allowing the province to top up the current, the existing sick days program that the federal government is managing and distributing funds. Currently, it's about twelve fifty an hour. It's actually below minimum wage. So we said we'd double it to about a thousand dollars a week, twenty five dollars an hour. And uh, but we would ask the federal government to use the system currently in place and distribute those dollars to people who apply for the additional funding. It would be too onerous, probably too time consuming for the provincial government to launch a new program at this point. People need money quickly. If they're out of work, they want money deposited into their bank account as quickly as possible. This particular program at the federal level does that within three to five business days. So we are simply asking if uh, the feds aren't going to top up the amount of money, let's work together, let's keep the existing program in place, and let's ensure that people get the money they need so they can take time off work, so they can stay home and recover or take care of people who are uh, suffering from uh, COVID-19 symptoms. So do you know where we are with this, with the feds? Uh, what's their reaction to this? Well, I think there's a bit of hesitancy. I hope I'm, uh, I hope it doesn't continue. There may have been some concern about, you know, how does, why would the federal government want to take on, um, you know, more uh, responsibility? But the reality is we're pl- we will provide the funds 
We simply want them to disperse those dollars. We can't, uh, we just don't have the time or the resources to create a new program at this point. It's, it makes sense to tap into the federal program and to, and to provide the funds to people who need it. And I want to be very clear. I know that there had been a bit of um, social media hysteria, which is so, so surprising for social media, about a, um, the fact that a number of us turned down a proposal by the provincial liberal uh, party, um, or at least a member, um, Michael Coto. But he was asking for small business owners to pay for paid sick time. With what they've gone through in the past year, we just felt it was impossible to put that kind of pressure back on small business. And that's why we were hoping that we could get more cooperation from the, uh, from the provincial NDP and the uh, Liberals to support what we are doing and to promote it. There are hundreds of millions of dollars sitting in an account right now that people who are eligible to receive it have not applied for it because they're mm. unaware of it. We need to remind them that the program exists and we're willing to step in and top it up to a significant amount. I think $1,000 a week is reasonable and it will be very helpful. Uh, we needed the other parties to help promote it, but instead there was a lot of misinformation that was shared. The program exists. We simply want, um, we want to work with the federal government so that we can provide even more money to people who are eligible and who need it. And you have to wonder, I mean, there's there's money sitting in that fund that's there that is not being tapped into. Uh, you know, I mean, what's the sense of having the money there if it's sitting in, in a bank account and nobody's uh, nobody's grabbing it? Um, let's move on. A military Red Cross uh, coming into Ontario. Uh, understand the military is also going to go into uh, Nova Scotia as well. That's mm-hmm. already been announced by the prime minister and possibly Alberta uh, in the future. Any idea what where they're going to be deployed, what they're going to do? I can tell you what they are going to do. They are going to help offer some respite to the frontline workers who are absolutely exhausted. We have invested billions over the past year creating capacity. The problem is, and we, we have two field hospitals under construction, but the problem is we need manpower. And there is a shortage of manpower, and the manpower that we currently have are absolutely exhausted. They've been working nonstop since last March. And the difference between caring for a person who traditionally is um, placed in an uh, intensive care unit versus someone with COVID, it's usually one-to-one, one patient, one nurse. But with COVID, it's six people per patient. So we have exhausted the existing resources. And that's when the uh, premier started working with other premiers asking if they could free up some resources and the federal government stepped in and said, we will, you know, we'll bring in the military. We will pay for the cost of uh, bringing in uh, teams from Newfoundland and Labrador to Ontario. We welcome the news. We appreciate it. But more importantly, we need it. They will be deployed to current ICU units and anywhere else that we can and feel we need additional human resources that's where they will be deployed and we welcome it we 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 really are encouraged to hear that we have such good partners both at the federal level and and other premiers across the province who've stepped in to offer some help but as you said we're also going to see pressures building in other provinces nova scotia is going to be receiving um, assistance as well personnel medical personnel will be flying to nova scotia 
and I suspect that we'll see them in BC and perhaps Manitoba as well. Uh, what about air travel? Because obviously we, you know, we finally saw the the prime minister uh, stop air travel to India and such, where of course they're having just an absolutely terrible time with all of this. But what about interprovincial travel and such? Because it, it seems odd we're all staying home and then people are still flying around. It is odd, and I don't think that the federal government did go far enough with restrictions placed on India and Pakistan. Uh, direct flights. I think we have to look at that uh, some of those people are taking flights that aren't direct there. For example, you can transfer in Frankfurt and uh, purchase a ticket $500 cheaper than a direct flight. So we know that there are people coming in from other countries who are COVID positive. But we also know, as you suggested, that we are seeing more and more cases interprovincial travel with COVID positive passengers. We would like the federal government to insist that people be tested and show a COVID, COVID negative test before they're able to board a flight. We have airports, you know, Pearson, um, and of course, Hamilton, Hamilton itself. We've received passengers. I don't know if any have been COVID positive, but it is a destination for travel. I can assure you that I, I speak to the CEO, Kathy Puckering, on a regular basis, and she's doing everything she can to institute plans to provide safe measures, not only for passengers traveling through the airport, but also staff on the ground. We've been talking about, um, you know, rapid testing and, and hopefully getting vaccine sites up there as well. But I agree. I think that we need to really tighten up our controls at our borders, international and domestic. We've got to stop the spread of COVID-19. There's, um, it's tough. There is a stay-at-home order but we see a lot of people out i see a lot of traffic on the road i drove into queen's park yesterday for a vote and it was busy there are a lot of people moving across the province and when they move they have the potential of spreading this deadly and even more deadly virus with the new variant more and more people are at a younger age are getting covid19 and it's having more devastating effects we've seen Two deaths, uh, an infant and, of course, the tragic death of the, the young girl in, in Brampton on the weekend. We don't want to see that continue. It is a frightening development, but I'm hoping it's an eye-opener for people who just don't think that staying home works. It does. It's the only way to contain this. That and, of course, what you and I both talk about, which is getting vaccines and getting them in the arms of uh, Ontarians. What about vaccine supply, Donna? Because I've heard there's now going to be a shortage of AstraZeneca because obviously India, who makes it, they're not going to be sending it anymore. they got their own problem to deal with uh, as opposed to selling it out the door to the highest bidder. Um, when I got mine a couple of weeks ago, the pharmacist was saying the uptick was low. Uh, then we saw changes uh, from Patty Haidu and, and the federal health, administ- uh, federal health minister saying, okay, anybody over 18 can get it now. And then all of a sudden the mad dash was on. But there was limited supply of this. I understand there's not more coming in till possibly uh, June. So how is the supply of AZ now that we've lowered in and we're trying to hit all these hot spots? It isn't consistent, and that is the problem. Really, we we Pfizer has been the most consistent. We are going to yeah. be receiving, the, the Prime Minister announced today that we will be receiving some of the Johnson & Johnson supply, I believe. We're going to be getting 2 million doses of vaccines next week, and then he claims 2 million a week per week after that through yeah. May. We need the vaccines. That is really the key to this. Uh, We want to have a summer. We all want to have a summer. We all want to be able to reopen. Um, We want to be open for business. We want 
kids to get back in school, but we have to have those vaccines. And it, you know, we've said it, Scott, you've said it a million times. I've said it as many times. It isn't our responsibility. It falls solely on the responsibility of the prime minister. And we are beholden to him. And until he can provide consistent supply of vaccine, we can't, um, you know, we're, we're really uh, fighting this any, with every chill we can, but we need the vaccine. That's the bottom line. Here's hoping that as of uh, the beginning of May, that, uh, that uh, you know, spikes up uh, as uh, he has promised. Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glambrook with us. Uh, Donna, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. And don't forget to get Kurt to send me his resume. I will for sure. Thank you, Donna. Take care. One person in their 60s and someone over the age of 80 have passed away, bringing the number of COVID-19 related deaths in Hamilton to 355. Public Health has confirmed 627 more cases of the B117 variant for a total of 2,766 overall, as well as 1,002 that have screened positive as one of the variants. A large outbreak at a construction site on Rymel Road has come to an end, but two new outbreaks have been declared at Cushy's Baby, a children's clothing store in Stony Creek, as well as the YWCA Downtown Hamilton Child Care Centre. While the number of active COVID-19 cases in the city has increased slightly to 1,000 1,558. There have been slight reductions in the weekly case rate and test positivity rate. Lisa Pileski, 900 CHML News. Some of the uh, headlines breaking today. Military, uh, Canadian military going to uh, come to help out Ontario and Nova Scotia, uh, standing by for Alberta and uh, possibly British Columbia coming up uh, in the future as these uh, variants go right the way across uh, the country. So uh, obviously in a uh, bad situation. Unfortunately, right now, Alberta has the highest uh, per capita rate of uh, new infections, new cases, as we see more and more variants uh, moving across the country. Uh, terrible story of a 13-year-old girl passing away uh, yesterday. Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia uh, uh, as well saying uh, as of yesterday that uh, they had confirmed that a two-year-old uh, that uh, had passed away, had uh, in fact passed away as a result of COVID-19. So we're in a bad way. All you have to do is look at what's going on in India and uh, how we have to uh, keep the protocol up, keep the masking and the social distancing and the washing of the hands uh, continuing until we can get everybody with a jab in their arms. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of the Emergency Centre, City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Great to be with you again. So, again, Paul, man, we've been doing this for an awful long time when we bring you in here and kind of get a local update and such. But uh, where is Hamilton now? We're starting to see a bit of good news, are we not? Uh, real early shoots of good news uh, uh, popping up, and, and that is that there's been some plateauing, it appears. Now, again, it can all change in a, in a moment, but some plateauing of, of uh, numbers and and that's good news. Of course, the positivity rate is still very, very high. Uh, and our hospital systems are completely overwhelmed at the moment in terms of, of the amount of staff that they require. And, and the work that's going on right now is, is really challenging for them. But we're holding our own. And if these do plateau and we can get through the next uh, couple of weeks, which are, uh, you know, as, uh, as uh, Dr. Brown provincially says, they're already baked in. Unfortunately, there will be in the hospitalizations and things that occur because of what happened in the past. But if we can start to, to plateau, uh, even decrease a little bit those numbers, 
uh, we're in good shape. The other piece of good news is, is that the vaccine march continues. And yes, we would love to have more supplies so that we could ramp up to full capacity and, and uh, many more uh, needles in arms. But the reality is, as we sit at about a third of the eligible uh, population in Hamilton now with at least one dose. And of course, many of the very vulnerable with two doses. So those are the pieces that, that balance out the tough stuff that you're hearing about. You talked about it in your intro. Uh, younger people being impacted very severely in fact, some very young people dying of uh, COVID-19. Uh, hospitals really on a knife edge in terms of being able to staff and, and continue to deliver the services they need to. But then there's this other piece that's churning along, which is the vaccine program. It does work. And uh, we're, we're doing everything we can to move that forward. What about variants in Hamilton? How much have, ha, has that changed the picture? Uh, it's, it's, it's huge. It's what's made this third wave uh, so significant, and it's probably what's made this third wave for many people uh, very much more scary And uh, because these variants are real. And, you know, as Dr. Richardson said early on in this, there will come a point where these, you know, really we're looking at the bulk of, uh, of cases uh, being uh, these, some of these variants and, and some of them, the variants of concern. And that's what's happening. You see higher and higher numbers of it. And the transmission of, of uh, the virus uh, seems to be obviously a little easier. And also some of the impacts of the virus a little more severe and significant. Uh, so that's a concern. And that's why we continue to, to push on with vaccines, but why we also have to be in things like our stay at home order right now provincially. And the restrictions that are in place is uh, we're trying to make sure that the transmission possibilities uh, for this virus are kept to as, as uh, few as possible. And of course, for those that, that have to be out every day working and doing the things they need to do, uh, we understand it's a very anxious time and we wish we had more vaccine to help people feel a little more confident. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, that continues to be a supply issue for us. Uh, obviously, we're hearing uh, of the situation that uh, hospitals are in along the greater Toronto-Hamilton uh, area. Uh, now it looks like the military, Red Cross, are coming into Ontario as well as Nova Scotia and standing by for the West. Uh, any idea if you will see them in Hamilton and what their, what their role will be? Well, Hamilton Health Sciences, of course, is working on uh, on setting up um, uh, sort of field health hospital operation at their uh, at their their uh, downtown location. So there is some of that work happening. Uh, the real challenge for healthcare right now is is the accredited and trained and capable people to deliver service. You know, people say, is it about bed expansion and whatever else? Generally, that's not the issue. We can find spaces. Hospitals have abilities to increase. Uh, the bed capacity that they would have. The real challenge is who's going to provide that very specialized mm. uh, uh, healthcare work that goes on there. Critical care, healthcare professionals, and uh, ICU healthcare professionals uh, are not everybody that's in the healthcare sector. This is uh, you know, specific groups of people that need to be there. So I know the challenge is less about how many beds can we create. The challenge is about who will be there to provide the healthcare services that people need. Uh, while they're there. So our hospital systems are in great hands. The leadership, not only in Hamilton, but in our region, uh, they, they talk regularly. Our paramedic services have come together as well as provincial resources like Orange, uh, to, to do these uh, transfers of patients between jurisdictions. And, uh, you know, this is a very tenuous time for hospitals in terms of, of their right at their capacity and doing everything they can. But the really good news is is how well they're working together. I get to hear a lot of the updates and 
while it's challenging times, um, they're doing a tremendous job of not having this completely overwhelm the system. Uh, I got my AZ shot a week and a half ago, a week ago last Friday, and that was just before, the Friday before they actually lowered the age, which was the Sunday night, and I remember the pharmacist saying that, you know, at the beginning there was a huge uptick, and then all the hesitancy around the mixed messaging and, and such, and people were canceling appointments or not making appointments, then of course they lowered the age. And, uh, and, and got those 40 up involved. Uh, but obviously, situations in India, which have pretty much shut off the supply of AstraZeneca, which was feeding those pharmacies and doing all of this extra stuff that, that, uh, that, you know, uh, municipalities like the city of Hamilton over and above what their, uh, city clinics were. Uh, are you concerned with now the shortage of AstraZeneca supply and what will replace that in the pharmacies? Always concerned about supply, and this uh, seems to be the story of, uh, of certainly the last uh, couple of months and, and going forward. Is uh, you know you get you get uh, good things happen. We get a bit more supply on one side, and that's unfortunately sometimes offset by by decreases. It's Moderna pulling back one week, but Pfizer increasing, and then now AstraZeneca having challenges. The good news is we hear that uh, uh, doses of Johnson and Johnson are are headed. Uh, mm-hmm. Into Ontario soon, and will be coming our way soon. So again, it's this back and forth. Uh, the good news is, is that we do have multiple vaccines, uh, all extremely effective, and all ones that uh, people should be uh, happy to have uh, put in their arms. Um, you know, once they've satisfied themselves, if they do have any underlying medical conditions or questions, they can be easily answered. But assuming that you are able to take a vaccine in general. Uh, whatever one is offered to you, whatever one you can get, it's a good thing to do. And we've seen a big surge in people getting into the pharmacies uh, where there is supply uh, because of the dropping of the age range. And uh, I know that well because I'm fighting my way through waitlist issues uh, to try and get myself uh, in to, to get it in the arm because I'm now eligible as well. So mm. it's one of those things where, um, you know, we we continue to, to watch. And we're really happy, though, that we don't always rely on one source. So things go up, things go down. What it generally means is we have a steady supply of a number that we've been using for a while. Uh, our hope is that that will continue to grow as the supply issues get get uh, get changed. And we do hear that coming uh, into June, uh, there's going to be even more available. So uh, you know, we'll do what we can through May, and then hopefully uh, the number really starts to shoot up as we get into June. So I guess at this point, uh, as you said, Johnson & Johnson coming in, I understand it's not going to get to the provinces till next week, but any idea how that's going to fit into the arsenal at the municipal level at this point? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting new tool at our disposal because, of course, it's a single dose. Yeah. So if you think about it in terms of uh, some of the populations that um, we're really concerned about, it could be uh, those within our, our shelter system, um, those who are uh, farm workers, those types of things where it may be harder to follow up with people. Those will be priorities for that. Obviously, it will flow into, uh, you know, we'll just, I don't know what the delivery mechanism will be, whether it be through municipal, uh, public health units or whether it will be through uh, primary care or other other venues. We'll get that information when it comes. But the, uh, you know, the really good news is that for populations where it's tough, a little bit tougher to book that second dose, 
uh, this will offer us a tool that uh, will be really uh, effective and efficient. And, and uh, so that's good news. A little bit different. All the, as uh, most people know, but I'll re- repeat, uh, all of the vaccines we currently have require a second dose. Uh, and that will be scheduled uh, for different periods, depending on your situation. For some, it will be uh, within the time frame um, uh, of, you know, three weeks to five weeks, depending on the vaccine. And then for others, it will be uh, about four months later. Uh, so you get to get that second dose. But for Johnson & Johnson, it's one and done. So we're uh, we're starting to see an uptick, uh, an uptick now this week with vaccines coming into the country. One point nine uh, million, you said, uh, and the prime minister has said we were hoping to get uh, two million a week as uh, we move forward through May. How does that uh, fit into your uh, your capability and, and, and the capacity that you have? Are, are we able to uh, receive that many vaccines per week? We are, uh, you know, we, we run now anywhere between sort of, you know, high 30% to just over 50% of our, of our capacity. So we are well below what we have as our capacity. Uh, and if we were uh, delivering uh, far more doses on a daily basis, you know, we'd be doing two or three percentage points of the population, perhaps on a daily basis, getting at least one dose. So, uh, we're really anxious. Uh, most of our clinics are operating well below their capacity. That's um, that's where we are. We designed them to be at a, a rate where we could deliver about 10,000 doses to this community each and every day. We're nowhere near that at the moment. And uh, so we're really hopeful that that will start to ramp up. The people are in place. The places are in place. I get this question sometimes that, you know, if we get more, will we have to scramble? Will there be a delay as we set up clinics, as we set up things? And the answer to that is no. The infrastructure is there. Uh, right now, we're actually operating at below our capacity, and we really want to get that capacity up. And if we were to do 10,000 doses a day, Scott, we'd be able to move through the population um, very quickly and offer those who uh, who want the vaccine uh, a chance to get it very quickly. Because right now, of course, bookings are often full, and people are waiting you know, a number of weeks until m- more mm-hmm. booking slots become available or more supply comes into pharmacies, whatever it is. And that waiting game is, is tough, particularly for people who can't work from home, uh, who need to be working uh, out in the community and interacting with people. It's a very nervous time. Uh, obviously, uh, there's been lots of chatter about strategy with what vaccine you do have. Where do you aim it? Do you aim it at, uh, at those in certain age groups? Do you steer it into hotspot locations, which is what obviously, obviously we're starting, uh, starting to see now in Southern Ontario as more supply comes in? Hamilton doing the same thing, going into certain areas, or is it still based as, as age groupings? Yeah, we're doing a combination of it, but we are looking at targeted approaches, and and sometimes those are very, very small targeted approaches, uh, like when we went into our emergency shelter system and did staff and residents of emergency shelters. It's mm-hmm. the work we're doing with uh, what we call those who are homebound, so our paramedics going into the community to people's homes. Uh, if family physicians, if uh, if the Lynn Home and Community Care uh, folks have said these people can't really get out of their home, then paramedics are doing that in, in, in a very individualistic way. And then there's our postal codes. So not only the ones that the province designated as hotspots, but three additional ones that the uh, primarily in our lower city that uh, public health have identified and looking at ways that we have pop-up clinics there and, and working with different communities to ensure that we can get up the percentage of those vaccinated in areas where uh, we know the burden of COVID-19 has been higher. And what you see in most communities 
is that uh, you know the access and the and the the vaccine people getting the vaccine is sometimes in the areas where the vaccine rate is much lower. We need to turn that around, and that's where you do a targeted geography approach with our hotspots. And you'll notice that the age has dropped in those hotspots to 40 years old as well. So it's a way of accelerating things in hot zones, and it's also a way of us um, you know balancing out where we need to get that vaccine first. So a broad strategy at the city, and I know folks. Uh, you know, wish it could tackle, uh, uh, you know, all of these essential workers now, people that can't work from home. Uh, the reality is with all of that work on strategy, the single biggest factor that determines how fast and how effective we can be in delivering the vaccine is supply. And mm-hmm. I'll remind the community that in this phase that we're in, in phase two of vaccination, there are about 300,000 Hamiltonians eligible for vaccine. And uh, we just don't have that supply on a weekly basis that will allow us to do this uh, in just a couple of weeks. It's going to take uh, a few months. Uh, Obviously, as I mentioned before, a few weeks ago, there was some hesitancy uh, around this. Now we're starting to see the variants rise and and, and what's happening in in other parts of of the world and in other parts of this country. The hesitancy has seemed uh, seems to subside with supply and demand as supply goes down. So does hesitancy. Uh, Yeah, maybe a a little bit on it. No. You know, I think we need to just overall just keep telling people that uh, the real way out of this and the real work for, for our community is to is to make sure that everybody who is able uh, gets that vaccine quickly. We need to have good information in the public uh, venue. And I, I know that people, you know, they want to read things about the different vaccines. What's the best vaccine and all of that or or, you know, why if they're not offering it to me, does that mean that that? Uh, there's something up. And the answer to that is we're just trying to find a way to vaccinate the entire community with a restricted supply. And, uh, and, and that's the challenge that we have. And we wish that we had more supply so we could just do it faster and get our communities there. The results we see from other jurisdictions around what happens when you get huge amounts of people vaccinated are just so positive. And then locally in our own community, the difference it has made in long-term care facilities and retirement yeah. homes, Scott, is unbelievable. Yes, mm-hmm. we still have cases. Yes, we still have outbreaks. They are generally to a couple of people. They do not spread as fast. They do not have the impact. They do not have the death. And across the province of Ontario, at last check, we were uh, less than 30 long-term care facilities. When I looked, it's, it's fluctuated around 30 long-term care facilities across the entire province that were an outbreak. And at one point, it was several hundred at a time that were an outbreak. Mm-hmm. So those are the things we need to look forward to. And and I just, you know, encourage the public, A, to be ready so you can get a vaccine whenever you're eligible, and B, be patient. Um, it's not that we don't have the strategy and the plan in place. It's that we need that supply in order to make it happen fast. And you bring up a very valid point, Paul. We remember the first wave of this and and the second wave, how devastated the long-term care and seniors' homes were. Uh, you know, we had perhaps less new cases, but man, the deaths were through the roof. And getting the, you know, at least the one and, and the majority of them with two doses into uh, long-term care. We've seen those numbers go down, and there is proof positive that, you know, this kind of vaccination works. It is, and, and as we look, as I say, at other jurisdictions around the world that um, that are advanced in terms of the percentage of the population that are vaccinated, you see very similar things happening as an overall curve, and we and we know that. I mean, everybody understands yeah. that intellectually. It's it's good to see it though happen in real time, as opposed to being a research piece or an intellectual exercise. 
our our experience locally, we can look to our long-term care and retirement homes and say there has absolutely been only one thing that has changed. Uh, they've both they've all been fully vaccinated. The, the two doses. That's the change. Look at the impact it's had. And, and we know that that will happen within our community as well. Will we, uh, you know, just be able to throw away the mask, stop washing our hands and all the rest? Absolutely not. We need to continue with those protective measures as well. But uh, in terms of being, you know, scared about the impact of this virus, you do not want to get this virus. And it, uh, getting vaccinated is uh, one of the best forms of protection that we have. Paul Johnson, Director of the Emergency Centre, City of Hamilton. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. My pleasure, Scott. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Time for commentary. If you listen to federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh's news conference on Monday, you'd think the race between COVID-19 variants and the vaccine was an afterthought. And the only way to really cure COVID-19 is by providing paid sick leave. Singh was repeatedly questioned about the banning of flights from India and the spread of variants, but instead of answering, several times deviated the conversation away from air travel and repeatedly went back to paid sick days. The only comment Singh made on air travel was that he would follow the science. However, doctors have repeatedly confirmed where the variants are from and that air travel should be ceased until we get a handle on this. When asked if the provinces should pick up the tab to add to paid sick leave, after slamming Doug Ford, Singh said it was the federal government's plan that was inadequate and he would rather fix that plan, which makes a lot more sense. So let's stop to ponder that. Why not fix Justin Trudeau's federal paid sick leave plan rather than having the provinces try to build something that isn't their responsibility? After all, if Justin Trudeau can't make paid sick days work, How the heck are provinces supposed to do it with much less resources? The money is already there and unused, but like many things big government, it's inefficient and a waste of time. So let's fix that first, instead of always asking the provinces to do the prime minister's job. I'm Scott Thompson. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. You know, you got to think no matter what the chatter is, if we had more vaccine, none of this would be an issue. Yet that's what we seem to be concentrating on, those other issues that uh, would all be solved if we just simply had more supply. Like, how come we're waiting so long between doses? Who do we decide who gets to go first? How come they get to go first? How come I don't get to go ahead of them? All of these decisions uh, now force the provinces into very precarious situations uh, simply because the supply is trickling in. Now we're hoping with the month of May that we get up to 2 million doses a, a week, as the Prime Minister has promised. But uh, again, uh, we've seen that in the past. I, I guess the optimism here is the United States and other countries uh, as, such as the UK are finishing. So you got to think, especially with the US as they finish up, uh, they're going to send their extras up here just to get uh, the US-Canada border open and uh, and travel going back and forth to those northern United States. 
States. Uh, fascinating article in the National Post today, also the Financial Post. Diane Francis is with us, editor at large uh, with the Financial Post. Pandemic failure is Trudeau's biggest scandal yet. Diane Francis is with us now. Diane, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing just fine. Uh, thanks for the time. We appreciate this. Uh, you know, when we think of scandals in the Prime Minister, we think of the We scandal, uh, the We charity. We think of the SNC Lavalin, Jody Wilson Raybould thing. How is this a scandal for the government? Well, this is a scandal because the federal government was supposed to get supplies, and they haven't. It's been a complete and utter failure. So, covering up for it, they 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 permitted dosages to be spread out for four months, so that you know, more people could get a first dose and they could brag that they were vaccinating people. The problem is that scientifically, if you don't get the second dose of Pfizer within 21 days, you might as well forget having gotten the first dose. It will rapidly, by four months, which people are now being asked to wait, deteriorate to the point of no effectiveness whatsoever. This is a flim-flam designed to cover up politically a complete failure on the part of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his, you know, health minister, who's a graphic designer by trade, and his procurement minister, who's two years out of the classroom, who had, don't know what they're doing and haven't gotten us enough vaccines. So people are running around with one shot, and that's not adequate. The reality is that only 2.7% of Canadians have gotten both doses, and they're fully vaccinated. If you don't have both doses and you have to wait four months, you will not be fully vaccinated even after you get your second dose. So this is a scam. This is disgusting, and this is all designed to cover up. Now, Pfizer has come out in March, and in, before that, in a press release saying, you have to have it done in 21 days. They don't directly criticize the government, but you know they're very concerned about the fact that their vaccines are being misused this way for political reasons. And my, my column today only says the only figure that counts, you know, he brags about how many Canadians have been vaccinated. That's partial vaccination. That does not count. Full vaccination is the only thing that counts. And we're at 2.5%. You know, we're down there with Bangladesh, for goodness sake. Mexico has more fully vaccinated 4.5% of its people, and Canada's at 2.7%. So, you know, he's putting at risk lives. He's putting at risk the economy because we can't keep having outbreaks and lockdowns because we don't have enough vaccines. And that is directly and only the fault of the Liberal government in Ottawa. Period. It's fascinating because uh, several weeks ago we were hovering between 50th and 40th, 50th, 60th when it comes to getting vaccinated. Then all of a sudden we shot up to 30th and we shot up there for the exact same reason that you just said. We started delaying uh, the doses for up to uh, four months, which obviously I think uh, Quebec started doing initially. But the prime minister said something fascinating today at his news conference. He said that Canada is second in doses of the G20. And when he was asked to clarify what that meant, it's the number of daily doses administered to the population. I don't even know what that means. He's wrong, and it's, it's, it's scandalous. He is absolutely wrong. Look, the science is clear. It's on the label that you have to have the second Pfizer shot in 21 days, maybe a few more days grace after that. Moderna, 28 days. 
That's what's on the label. To make people wait four months, we're the only country in the world that's doing it, and it's fraudulent. It's, it's misleading the public into thinking they're vaccinated. They're not. It's going to run out because it degrades until you get the booster. That's the whole game. So what he's doing, you can't look at the number of needles put in arms. He's playing this game. Yes, okay, we've had 10 million needles go in arms, but we only have 2.7% of the population that have had two needles and are therefore fully vaccinated. So we are lagging so far behind the rest of the world. As I say, we're down there with Bangladesh and Mongolia, for goodness sakes. Mexico's done a better job. This is scandalous that he is allowed, and the media does not do anything. I mean, apart from myself and some other people in the post-media chain, where is the CBC? Where is the Globe? Where is the Star? Where are the other newspapers? I mean, this is shocking. Now we find, and I put it in my column today, that Quebec, because of this dipsy-doodling and this deviation that's being permitted by Ottawa, is considering putting AstraZeneca in as a second shot after a Pfizer shot. In other Mm. words, they want to mix these cocktails. I can't tell you how dangerous this is. But, you know, when you have a federal government that deviates and says, oh, four months doesn't matter, then I can go around and brag that I've vaccinated 10 million people. Then, you know, anything goes. And they're not doing their job. And they also haven't done their job keeping foreigners out. Uh, Quebec was the first to uh, start the one-dose regime. They didn't put the second dose in for a, an awful long time. Uh, Ontario, of course, decided to get the long-term care done twice because that's where the problem was. And we saw Quebec veer way ahead of, of Ontario as soon as they decided they weren't going to administer uh, the second dose. So now we're seeing them possibly mixing uh, the drugs up, and whether they're an mRNA vaccine or the the typical bio vaccine, uh, talking of mixing them up, will that soon become Canada's uh, policy? Is. Simply because we've already followed Quebec's policy with the one dose. Our, let's get off get off the topic of what the provinces are doing. The provinces are doing damage control. Okay, they're taking the four months because. You know, they're allowed to do the four months, but but they should never have been told they could do four months. They can't. They're doing damage control, and Ottawa is encouraging them to do this. It's all Ottawa's fault. The buck stops with the fact that our prime minister dithered around, counted on a deal with a Chinese vaccine maker. This is the same country that's jailed two innocent Canadians for years and has barraged us and, and broken contracts and treated Canada like an enemy state, he made a deal with them thinking that would work. Of course, it didn't, and he had no backup plan because he has no credentials to be the leader of a pop stand, never mind a G7 country. You look at his cabinet members. They don't have any credentials to be there. There's not one person in that cabinet who's been in any of the important sectors that, you know, are in the business sectors of this country. Nobody in oil and gas, mining, banking, nothing, construction, engineering. They don't know anything except how to take our money and hand it out and get reelected. So this is what we have. And now this is dangerous. This is not just a scandal about a few people getting paid what they shouldn't be paid by we charity. This is about lives and this is about our economy being installed. 
That being said, Diane, we're watching his poll numbers go up. I mean, I have people on from uh, Angus, uh, Angus Reid, Leger, all the major polling companies, and the numbers of the prime ministers still seem to be incredibly strong. We always knew this is about vaccines and variants and the race between, but, you know, as you've mentioned, the provinces, especially Ontario, is taking the heat, and we hear more chatter about paid sick days than we do about variants or closing air travel or or vaccine or such so how do you explain these numbers considering what you're talking about people are not aware people do not do research or homework and the media has failed abysmally the media has perpetuated this you you watch his press conferences and the softball questions that are asked by Mm. liberal journalists is disgusting and he gets away with this. Instead, he gets up there and he says, oh, we have 8 million coming in July. We have 8 million coming. Well, how many did you, how many people were fully vaccinated this week? That's the only question the press should be dogging him with. But they don't ask him that because they're not informed. And I'm, I'm telling you, the poll, polls are, are a disgrace. It's a disgrace. How come Canadians are buying in? How come Canadians, no matter what we go through, simply uh, praise the prime minister and think it's not his fault, it's Doug Ford's or any other premier? Because they're very good at the scam. They're very good at playing the game, and the media isn't very good anymore. Period. That's the only thing that can explain it. And besides which, I don't think people you know, are that attuned to the media in, in this sort of, you know, in these in these kinds of, uh, specific areas. And so, you know, he just waltzes through and he gets away with this. Now, also, you have to be careful of, of polls. These polls are commissioned by the liberals and, and you know, and they're, and they're publicized by the liberals. This is all to fortify the mythology that he's, you know, Mr. Mr. Vaccine Champion, and he's doing such a good job. I don't believe the polls. I don't say they're inaccurate, but I don't think people have necessarily been asked the right questions. You can ask any question in a poll and get any answer you want. I know how polls work. You know how polls work. So I don't trust the polls. I don't trust that people were given the right question to answer to. And, you know, people don't really, in between election calls, people don't really focus that much. And so the whole idea of this this uh, lengthening of the dosage delay and so on is so that he can, you know, brag about getting needles in arms. What about the opposition? What are what should they be doing here? I mean, I, I watched Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, federal NDP, yesterday, and he was constantly challenged about uh, the variants and and air travel and such. And he constantly went back to paid sick leave that that was the solution uh, out of this. Uh, Aaron O'Toole has seemed to be you know not make an impact at all uh, during any of this. What does the what do the opposition leaders need to do here? Well, I think the opposition leaders need to step up, and that, that includes all of them. But, you know, let's face it. I mean, Singh is just a branch of the Liberal Party. Uh, he keeps this guy in power. Remember, remember, our prime minister, two out of three people did not vote for Trudeau. Three people did not. He only got 34% of the vote. And if you take away the fact that the voter turnout was very poor, he actually ended up with 23% of the total potential vote of this country. And this guy runs the place. 
And he runs it as though he has a majority and has the support of the public because of Jagmeet Singh, who is also another uncredentialed leader. As far as the other two, I mean, their voices are just not... I, I just don't, and I think most of the, I think the CBC and certainly the Globe and the others, they're very biased toward the liberals, period. And so the, the message doesn't get out, even if the message should get out, it's getting out. Obviously, uh, a budget uh, very recently, many said that it was an election budget, a little in there for everybody. Child care was the main plank of this. Um, is there, are we going to see an election come fall? I mean, I, I don't think that's, uh, in the cards for, uh, before the fall, but you certainly see it by the fall. No, I don't, I don't, I'm not a political writer. I don't do that. And I think the problem is political writers don't, don't immerse themselves enough in understanding this vaccine science situation. It's very simple. I'm a business writer, so facts matter to me. Political, political writers, you know, uh, just quote politicians. And I, I deal in facts. And I've been leading the country in this crusade about this dose delay because the facts are just outstanding. I mean, anybody with a brain can see that this is this is uh, hazardous. This is very hazardous and scandalous. So that's what I stick with. I don't know if there's an election in the fall or what. I just know that obviously they're playing this game with the vaccine so that he can go around and tell everybody that he's got millions of people that have been vaccinated, uh, even though they've only been partially and therefore might as well not have been. And maybe he's he's hoping that he can get enough install until he can get an election and, and claim that he's Mr. Vaccine. When in actual fact, I think the variants are going wild in this country because dosage delay means that people will be susceptible even after one dose and after three weeks to catching these variants. I mean, this is irresponsible. This is quite irresponsible. Don't you think sooner or later, Diane, this, the rubber has to hit the road here? Because sooner or later, uh, people will run out of, will have the first doses, and then everybody is going to be lining up the same way for the second dose. So the longer this goes on, uh, won't eventually reality set in here? I hope so. Yours will help. You should be doing shows on this. Why don't you talk to doctors and nurses? Nobody seems to want to talk to them. They are furious about this. Anybody who knows anything about medicine cannot believe that the public is not taking pitchforks to Ottawa over this. It's totally ridiculous. You know, it's very bizarre, Diane, because... Get doctors doctors and nurses and scientists and pharmacy people on on the on your radio show to tell the public this is what you know I'm what doing. diane it's diane we get we get a lot of people a lot of academics a lot of uh, a lot of uh medical experts and such on the show and it's amazing how many of them stick up for the federal government it's well, amazing find out, where find out where their liberal party affiliation is and and you know whether they get government grants and all of that sort of thing i don't believe an academic about much Academics are people that couldn't do what they teach, okay? Talk to doctors. Talk to ER doctors. Talk to people in the ICUs who are dealing with this crisis. It's a crisis in the hospitals. Do you know that a lot of the workers in the hospitals can't get second doses because of this terrible prime minister of ours? That being said, a lot of the doctors will scream about paid sick leave, that that's the one thing we can do. And that's, you know, there seems to be more attention put on paid sick leave than there is 
uh, procuring more vaccine. Yeah, well, that's irrelevant. Anyway, I just talk about facts, so I've appreciated all this time you've given me. <laughs> Diane Francis with us, editor-at-large with the National and Financial Post. Uh, the article is, Pandemic Failure is Trudeau's Biggest Scandal Yet. Diane, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Tons of email asking us about Diane Francis column. It's in the Financial Post and in uh, the National Post. A lot of asking why we don't hear more of this. Uh, feel free to weigh in. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, we were talking a while ago about the price of wood, lumber. People are at home. Uh, some people want to do some uh, extra work around the house, maybe uh, fix a deck, fix a fence, build one, build a birdhouse, build anything. But uh, I remember seeing a picture on social media and it's like taking it to Home Depot and there's a piece of plywood there and the price is 95 bucks. So we're seeing prices double, even triple and, and add as much as 30 and $40,000 to the price of an average home. Why is that happening when uh, look around? There's trees everywhere. Let's bring in Liz Kovach, president of the Western Retail Lumber Association and is with us now. Liz, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. I hope you are, too. Yeah, thanks so much. So why are we seeing these prices, especially when it seems to be lots of wood around in Canada? Well, there is quite honestly a perfect storm of issues. And to be very honest, had there not been a COVID pandemic, if we weren't in a pandemic situation, we wouldn't even be talking about this conversation. And all those funny posts that we're seeing on social media about lumber wouldn't exist. But when we look at what's happened in the last year, it certainly has put a lot of strain on the industry. And one of the key things that uh, when you talk about the forest, and yes, there's a lot of wood around us, for the natural resources in general, boom and bust does not work for that uh, sector of the economy. And especially when it's natural resources that are renewable, we need to make sure that we're harvesting that properly and fostering it properly. And it takes about 80 to 85 years for a tree to grow in order for that to be harvested and 20 years ago, and you know, it's human nature for us to sort of forget a lot of things that may have happened in the past that shaped the future today. There was uh, the mountain pine beetle moved into BC and the government uh, had approved an increased allowable cut as a salvage operation just to make sure that the disease trees were taken out of circulation and it didn't perpetuate the problem and it would prevent further forest fire risks as an example. Well, that took out 3 billion board feet out of production. And if we had access to that lumber, uh, that raw material, or we, we likely would not be in this situation today, but we are, and that will improve, but it not, not for many, many years. So when you take that factor out and then you add in the whole coronavirus pandemic where people who were expecting to be traveling, they had budgets set aside to be going to Europe or wherever else they'd be traveling to, now are stuck at home and figured, well, we're going we're gonna to really invest in our home. And the DIY market truly did increase the demand on products. And when you look at lumber, it's it's traded on the stock market. It is commodity. Uh, supply and demand very much dictates the pricing on that. Uh, when I buy a piece of plywood or somebody buys a piece of plywood at their local lumber yard or wherever, mm. where does it come from? So the that's a great question. So plywood is not just simply wood. There's also a resin in there. Uh, and it's manufactured to, uh, it's compressed. And obviously there's a resin, the glue component to it, and the lumber. So Depending on where the facilities are, because we do have we have mills both in Canada and the U.S. and they are all part of the same company. 
Um, some of them get processed in the U.S. simply because the resins that are synthesized are coming from the U.S. Well, that res- those resin plants, uh, they were all taken offline when the freeze happened in Texas uh, not that long ago, which now created a shortage. And, of course, the hurricanes back in the fall along the golf course did the same. So you have product that's being harvested in Canada or the U.S being processed either in the Canada or the U.S. It's being shipped across both sides of the border. And when you have shortages of materials on both sides, that's going to create problems. Uh, and obviously, one thing I didn't touch on is the labor issues that were experienced when you have restrictions and you can't have the, your mills are not working at a full capacity because staff are not allowed to be uh, at full capacity. That then creates a huge backlog, which obviously we're still in. People are still waiting three months for their product. We've certainly seen how uh, the pandemic has spo- has exposed some uh, weak links in the chain here, and you know w- whatever the product is, uh, mm-hmm. lumber just another example of that. Should uh, should uh, the lumber industry be more self sufficient? Should it be more contained in Canada, or like building a car? Is that just impossible? Well, that's a really good question. Because of international trade agreements, it's very difficult to do that. Uh, One of our national resources in Canada is obviously trees, and we have more of it than anybody, so we have the capacity to sell it. When you have the free trade agreements that are in place, it basically means that you need to be able to cross-support each other. And with our global economies, it makes it really difficult for anyone to be self-sufficient because... It doesn't really seem like any one country has the capacity to manufacture, harvest uh, all in the same in the same country. So Mm -hmm. we are very globally uh, connected. And even just that's a great question because we have even had our members say, well, is there any way we can get some protectionism? We need to be careful what we ask for, uh, especially when you look at some of the tariffs that were placed in 2018 um, from the past U.S. administration. There was counter tariffs. We don't want to get into those situations where we're going to start being protectionist, not abiding by our free trade agreements, and then creating more of those frictions and issues. Will we see any changes to the supply chain as a result of the pandemic? Are we learning anything from this? Um, Well, I think we've, (laughs) that's a good question. Uh, And I don't know if I can give you a complete answer, but the supply chains have been very impacted and made very difficult. And back to not being able to harvest all the raw materials from one country, you may be looking to get some raw materials, let's say from China. Well, there's a huge backlog there when it comes to some of the containers. And we're really relying on companies to make sure that they're processing what they can and ship it across efficiently. But in this situation where there's so many labor issues uh, that were created and now have created a backlog, um, it's it's tough. Like there's definitely some holes that are poked in the supply chain. And I'm sure people are trying to figure out ways if we can be a little bit more sufficient. But It will be interesting to see what things look like in the next three to five years as a result of this. So we're certainly seeing even the prices of of homes and I'm sure every other product that uses this uh, commodity going up. How long are we going to see this this, um, shortage, which basically is driving the prices up? Uh, that's tough to say is if the demand continues to be as hot as it is. So as long as people are out there purchasing product and there isn't the capacity to get caught up, we're going to see this continue. And, you know, as we hear different things about more lockdowns happening, well, if that impacts manufacturing, and this is not even just an issue for the lumber side, this is an issue for all building materials. There's shortages on glass for fiberglass insulation, the resins, uh, the the whole freeze in Texas impacted spray foam insulation. So there are shortages everywhere. Containers are not available because everybody's racing to get caught up. 
So I suspect we're going to continue to see this until we get back to some semblance of normal. So um, until until we get that herd immunity that starts to open things up, I suspect we're going to continue to be in this situation. You talked about the uh, do-it-yourselfers. Uh, mm-hmm. Once things go back to normal a bit more, do you, do you anticipate that lightening up a bit? Has that made uh, that big of an impact in this problem? Well, yes and no. It depends because there are some people who are putting off projects. They're going to wait until the price right. comes down. So I expect that there might be another surge. Um, but as folks get back to traveling and spending money on sort of the normal things that they would do vacations, we're definitely going to see that demand starting to come down. What about the housing market? Because it seems here in Ontario, they're continually building. So uh, if you're in the midst of something, you're going to expect the prices to go up. As you said, I think some might be even delaying doing this uh, until things come down. But I don't know how long that's going to be. What about its effect on the construction industry? Well, the home, the home, the home building uh, piece, the housing market, sorry, is is really hot right now. All the the starts are up in a lot of the major cities, so that's still continuing to drive a demand. Uh, and obviously, everybody wants to be able to supply all that, but you know they've got so many markets looking to purchase products. So this obviously is going to have an issue on construction, and I'm sure. There are some probably difficult conversations that need to be had because if you look at a lot of contracts, some of them are guaranteed pricing. They've signed uh, guaranteed price contracts. Well, in a time like this, it's really hard to stick to what might have been committed to two years ago because it's almost unfeasible uh, to maintain those rates and still be able to stay in business. So not a not a really great situation, I think, for a lot of folks to be in. Obviously, you would hope that um, there are certainly funds put aside to be able to cover some of this off, but it's really hard to run a business when you have such an inflation on prices and really can't afford to not pass that on. I'm sure the builders and contractors are getting the brunt of this as well, right, as, as customers are seeing the price go up. Yeah, I would say they are. And even initially, when I look at some of our members who are the retail dealers that supply the materials, there was a lot of accusations made uh, in their court, and really they're at the mercy of everybody else. They, to be honest with you, when it comes to their bookings, they plan their bookings months in advance. So when they need to book their products, it's usually in October, November. So they rely heavily on communication from their home builders, from their contractors, to give them idea of what projects are coming up for the next year so that they can make sure they have enough material. And the one thing that nobody really expected in all of this was the demand from the DIY market from being at home. Uh, we've so, heard yeah, the word tough conversations and high emotions. There's no question. Uh, and and the word gouging comes out. Some customers are complaining about that. Is this really about gouging, or is it just the old supply and demand? It is. It is supply and demand. We've never seen anything like this. And uh, I wish I could share a screen with you right now, but I did ask RBC to sh- show for me a uh, graph out what historical lumber prices are, and they went back as far as 1999, and they're usually pretty level. The only other time that we saw a spike in pricing was in 2018 when we had the forest fires uh, and then things went back down. And of course, in this last year, because of the pandemic, they skyrocketed. And we've never seen this before. Uh, I can tell you that in chatting with a lot of our members in various areas of product lines, they have never experienced anything like this. So what advice do you have for the consumer out there, whether it's buying a house or looking for the D, uh, do-it-yourselfer or, or, or uh, you know, decks, cottages, what have you? What, what advice do you have for them over the next couple of years? Well, a couple are we of gonna, years. We're going to see this for a while, are we not, Liz? Uh, I suspect until, until we get to a point where we're normal and, and getting back to our regular life activities, 
it's so hard to predict anything right now. We actually thought that we would be in a better state at this point of the time this year than we were, you know, in the fall or Christmas. And that's not at all where we're at. So a lot of patience obviously would be required. And I think people also have to, you know, look at those decisions and say, look, if you, if I really want to do this project, if the material is available, if it really doesn't, I understand it's more expensive, but if it's something that can wait, then you have the choice to say, you know what, we can wait and see what happens or, you know, pull the trigger if you know that the material is there. But um, the bottom, one of the key things that I've always recommended to everyone that we speak with is open communication with whoever your suppliers are so that they know exactly what's coming down. Uh, the better they can plan in terms of materials, the better you can develop some strategies to maybe, you know, put some things on layaway or, or figure out a payment strategy to make it work. So, Do you think we'll see these prices, Liz, drop as dramatically as they went up? Do you think that'll be a longer process? Uh, you know, that's uh, it really depends on where we're at with the recovery. If it's a slow recovery, it'll probably be gradual because there's that constant getting caught up. It really depends on the demand. If the demand drops off of a cliff again, then we might see that happen. Liz Kobach with us, president of the Western Retail Lumber Association. Record high lumber prices, uh, adding as much as uh, 30K to the cost of building the average house, supply and demand during a global pandemic. Liz, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.